Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray tonight that you will make this word living and active in our lives, dividing between the bone and the marrow, getting right in between the things in our lives, that we may be growing to be more like Christ as we read your word. So would you slice and dice us, Lord? Would you use me so that your truth can go forward and so that we may be made more unto and more like your son, Jesus the Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight we've got a uh, big assignment. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Esther. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and pull them out. If you don't have one, they're in the back. You'll have to get it on your own. Um, A quick review before we jump into chapter 5. Just where we are, where we've been. So the book of Esther is about a person named Esther. (laughs) She's a Jew. She's in a a nation known as Medo-Persia. This is during the time of about 486 to 475 BC, so before the time of Christ. Um, the Jews at this time are in what's called the post, a post-captivity time. They were in bondage in Babylon, and then they were, uh, became freed after being there for 70 years to go back to their homeland. They could go back, but some of them did not. Some of them remained in foreign Uh, places where they were prospering and doing okay. One of those places was Medo-Persia. And they're mostly, this this book is mostly set in the city of Shushan or Susa. And that city is very close to Babylon, the city of Babylon. All of this, of course, on a modern map would be centered in the nation of Iran. And Medo-Persia was a giant empire. They took, again, they took over from the Babylonians. They were 127 provinces, a giant area of the middle portion of the world, stemming from almost to Greece, and then moving eastward to all the way to India, and then through the Middle East in the middle, and then down into northern Africa. So a giant uh, plot of land. And in Medo-Persia at this time, there is a king ruling named Ahasuerus, that's what we'll read in the text, and his name is also known as Xerxes I. And what has happened up to this point in the book of Esther is Xerxes, uh, first he gets mad at his queen, whose name was Vashti, has her deposed, has a big uh, beauty contest basically to then invite a new person to become his, his bride. He picks this Jew named Esther. She was an, an orphan, actually. She was raised by her cousin, older cousin, named Mordecai. Um, And then, as we've covered in these last two chapters, what's happened is um, there is a kind of an enemy that has come on the scene whose name is Haman. And Haman is this guy who who does not like Mordecai because Mordecai won't kind of bow before him or give him homage. He has a slightly higher station within the kingdom. He's basically kind of second to the king. Um, Haman does not like this, so those beginnings of all these interpersonal problems and conflicts. Um, but Haman decides that he's not just going to dislike it. He decides that he's going to do something very drastic. And so he goes and tells the king, um, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, um, that there's this group of people who don't obey the Middle Persian laws and who try to do things their own ways. And of course, he's referring to the Jews, of which Mordecai is a Jew, as well as Esther. Um, and the king is listening to him. He trusts what he says. He says, well, what should we do about this? And he says, I know what we should do. We should, we should get rid of all these people in your kingdom. Xerxes doesn't take the time to find out who these people are or how many there are. Turns out there's about 15 million Jews in all these provinces. I mean, it's a big spit of land. Um, and so he signs a law saying that on this specific date, I think in the month of Adar in the Jewish calendar, um, that these people 
all the Jews, the men, the women, the children, the infants, can be attacked and annihilated and destroyed. And when that news hits, it of course makes a giant dent in the social structure. People are like, what's going on? Mordecai finds out he's in sackcloth and ashes. He is publicly showing his, his angst, his sadness, his grief. And he goes to find Esther. Esther, of course, is now the wife of Xerxes. And he's like, you've got to do something about this. And she at first is like, I, I don't know if I can. Because if I go into the king without him calling to me, my life is at stake. And that was one of the laws of the Medo-Persians. This is something I've kind of touched on in every one of the studies. Uh, the Medo-Persian law was something that could not be rescinded. Once it was a law, it was concrete. And so she knew that if she went in, that her life would be in peril. Nevertheless, he, Mordecai, explains to Esther, look, Salvation for the Jews can come in some other direction, but maybe you've been placed in this position. Maybe you, you were kind of drawn out of these situations. You were an orphan. You, were, uh, you, were, you came to this area. You won the beauty contest. You became the queen. Don't you think maybe there's something more going on to this story about why you're here? So he, he brings up the big trump card, which is what this book is really about, is the providence of God, that God ordains things in our lives. We don't always understand why or how, but nevertheless, God is working. And so he presents this to Esther, and she fortunately receives the counsel. It's an incredibly kind of pastoral section of the end of chapter four, which is what we ended with last time. And she receives it, and she says, she says these words at the end of chapter four, um, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to start with what Mordecai says. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's really the, 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 the giant verse of the whole book, really. Esther 4, verse 14. And then Esther then replies and says to this, Go gather then all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. Uh, my maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. And that jumps us now into chapter 5. She's, she's taken on the, the task. She said, okay, I'm going to go, and if I perish, I perish. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to hear these words coming out of her mouth. Up until this point, she has not really been seen as a practicing Jew, a religious figure. She's just kind of somebody who's going along with the story. She's been in submission to Mordecai, but here we really see her character come out. So let's now pick up chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day, so remember she had agreed to ask for fasting for that long. Now on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So imagine he's, he's sitting in his, his like royal throne, his place. And he looks out and he sees someone standing in the court. And they're not supposed to be there unless he's called for them. When he sees this, he knows something is up. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther, verse 2, standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Now before we continue on into verse 3, I think there's a, a couple of really important things that the Lord has shown me in, in just these verses, kind of following from chapter 4. And I think the foremost one is the issue of prayer and obedience. She, having received the word that this was going on, decided to ask people to fast. I'm assuming along with that is fasting and praying. Usually those go hand in hand in the, in the Bible. 
and that she also would go and fast with her maids for three days. And she made a preparation, first of all, to pray. And there's a famous quote that says, one of the most important things about praying is preparing to pray, like setting aside a time. You're going through something in your life, you have to kind of set aside some time to pray about it, to get it straight before the Lord, to hear wisdom, right? We're told that if we lack wisdom, we should go and the Lord will give abundant wisdom to us in the book of James. So first of all, she goes and she prepares herself to hear. And second of all, as soon as the three days are up that she says, you notice there's nothing in the text that says, and Esther was hesitant after three days and decided to take a week off and go to Maui. Or that she really needed some more beauty treatments for another six months. Remember, she had like six months of oil treatments. She could have easily decided to kind of snake out of this thing. She was the queen. Didn't have to do it. But what it says is on the third day that she put on her royal robes, she dressed herself for obedience. This is basically her going to battle. She puts on her finest clothes. She stands in the inner court. She doesn't go in sheepishly like, you know, like kind of like knocking like, um, hey, maybe uh. she's like boldly standing before in the court where she knows one of two things will happen. She will either be extended grace and mercy or she will be killed for standing there. That's a bold move. But I love the preparation. She has taken the three days to seek truth, to ask others to seek truth for her. And she goes and she stands and puts herself right in the crosshairs of the situation. She doesn't, she doesn't try to get around it. She doesn't try to go to the left or go to the right. She dresses herself and she prepares. And one of the things, and there's, there's actually quite a few things I'm going to talk about with this issue of praying, seeking direction, and then acting. And the first is that we have to give her credit that after she is praying and seeking, once she gets an answer, she actually go, does go and do it. It's not just a mental exercise. Prayer, prayer is wonderful and it's really important. But if in the prayer you're given a direction to go or to do, it's really important that you go and do from the thing that you've received revelation for in prayer. Prayer is not just supposed to just to create then more prayer and, and more prayer. No, the prayer does have a purpose, but it also has a sending out after the prayer is done. Think if there were, think if Billy Graham heard from the Lord to speak to the masses, but he never actually went to them. He never actually got on the plane. He never actually drove to the site. How much would be lost? He obeyed. And I just love, I love the fact that this is, this is here. And she trusts that obviously within that prayer time, within that fasting, she trusts that what she has received and what she's heard, and we don't know the details of all that went on in there, but obviously something happened, a conviction, not to run away, not to not face this issue. And, and she realized that she was in great risk when she went, but she did it anyways. And I think one of the other things that's really important is that there's a really wonderful proverb that tells us about this issue of facing authorities or facing powers that are before you, it says here in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. So often kings seem to us like they're the ones whose hands we are in, like they have power and control over us, and to a certain extent. But this proverb reveals something very different. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, and he turneth it, whithersoever he will. And I love that, to think about the Lord holding a person's heart like water, and if he just, just directs it. You know, with water, if you just direct it just a little bit, it doesn't take much, the whole thing will flow that way. If the water is flowing down a particular way and you just put one thing and block it, it will, it will very quickly, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fight, water doesn't fight. Wherever it's directed, that it will go. And I have this kind of practical saying that I want to kind of put out here. Um, when you've prayed 
and when you know what you should do, do you do the same thing that Esther has done? Do you prepare yourself to obey? And do you put on your finest vestments in doing it? I just, I love that picture of the royal robes that she puts on. Do you put your finest foot forward in obeying the Lord? I, I, I think there's a, something about the presentation of a person who's like totally confident. I'm obeying what the Lord told me to do. Here I am, you know, not cocky, not full of self, full of godly confidence. There's a giant difference between man's confidence and godly confidence. Godly confidence is the Lord has this. I don't know how he has it, but I know he does. And thus I go. That's what we need more of in our Christian lives. Not to cower, not to wait for a reaction. Notice she also didn't wait. And, you know, before he extended the scepter, can you imagine what, what kind of beautifully pregnant moment that was where she was just standing there and he was looking at her and she's just wondering in her mind, how in the world is this going to work out? She didn't cower. She didn't begin to speak. She didn't, you know how we begin to self, sometimes doubt ourselves or wonder, oh, how's this going to turn out in that last moment, that last moment before you know? She just stood and then the scepter was given to her. Only then did she know. Only then. After all those days and those hours and preparing that day, only then did she know and see the Lord's hand caring and protecting her. Let's move on. So he has, he has given this, this scepter. He has said, you are safe. And now he asks her, verse three. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. We read about a similar request that Herod actually gives to uh, Salome in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, who had danced for him and made, made him very happy. So Esther answered, verse 4, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Do you think that was a request that he was expecting? She comes risking her life, and what does she do? Invites him to lunch. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? She invites him and Haman. Notice that both of them are invited. Haman, of course, the figure who has caused all this uproar and these problems to begin with. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So they, she asked, hey, why don't you come to this banquet? Why don't you come to lunch? I'm going to make something nice for you. He's like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's get, get Haman. Let's go. Let's go have lunch. It's a lunch date. It's a uh, Old Testament lunch date. Now, verse six. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? What, what do you want? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Again, up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And this is just a kind of a statement of generosity. Whatever you want. You know, it's kind of funny. Why don't, why don't every once in a while, why don't we read about somebody being like, okay, I'll take half the kingdom. Do you think that would have been a pretty interesting statement? But that's not what's answered. Then Esther answered and said, verse 7, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, so her big request when she's offered half the kingdom is, why don't we have lunch again tomorrow? These are, these are incredibly simple requests that Esther makes. And this again goes back to the issue of prayer. How, if you were facing like death, right? Death as a Jew, right? Because of this law. If you were facing death because of your position that you were being put in, risk all around, You'd think that you'd come up with a plan that was a little bit more involved than two lunch dates, right? But let me draw you back again to the issue of prayer, because that is so vital to understanding this chapter in the right way. When you pray, especially about a solution to something like this, you need to pray not only for the 
what, which in this case would be like a rescue, but also the how. And I'm going to make note of that here in this, in this board because there's a couple of principles of prayer that I think really undergird this entire study. Prayer. First of all, it's the, it's the seeking of the Lord. There's bringing the what and what he wants you to do, what to do. And then, of course, now the issue, how to do it. Now, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us if Esther was like a master banquet person. Was she really good cook? Did she make excellent soups? Did she make a frittata? You know, was she really good at baking pies? I have no idea. But what I do know is this, is that somehow she received the direction to invite these guys to a banquet. She went to the second step of, okay, if we're going to be saved, Lord, how do I do this? And sometimes when the Lord gives you a plan of how to do something, it might seem too simple. It might seem like that's not the direction I was thinking it was going. That's exactly where you need to listen very carefully. <laughs> because this is divine. This kind of plan, this is, this is a thing that only the Lord would come up with. That's kind of how sometimes you know that it is the Lord. Like, oh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Oh, that's right, because I'm not God. <laughs> and we'll see how these things work out in, in timing that end up being just perfect. The Lord, remember, has control not only of what's going on, but when it happens. And of course, that would be the next thing I add, the what to do, how to do it, and of course, when. And I'll write that down too, when. Do I ask King Xerxes right off the bat, save me? Or do I wait? Do I entreat him? Do I honor him? And then ask him again to come the next day. She's drawing him in. She's drawing him close. She's also drawing Haman. So that Haman is just with her and the king. It's not an accusation. He's right there. The king will see his reaction. We'll get to that. So, verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him. Now, this is interesting. Before he did not bow. Before he did not give homage. Now he's not even standing. Mordecai is just sitting in a chair looking at him like, yeah, there goes this guy again. And it makes him really mad. <clears throat> he saw that he did not stand or tremble before him, and he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. It's the first instance you'll see of Haman expressing any self-control, and it's the last you'll see of any self-control. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. He tells the people that already know him how great he is. I'm sure they were just so happy to just sit in audience for that. Have you ever had a friend call you and you're like expecting to talk to them and they just start bragging about all that they have? That's the most annoying phone call ever, right? Like you don't want that, or that lunch date, you're like, I just want to get out of here. Yeah, so he's bragging about all that he has. He's happy that he was, you know, invited to this single dinner with him and just him and the king and the king's wife. He's, he's thinking, he's, like, he's thinking he's in, well, probably not hog heaven, but he's thinking he's in heaven. He's, he's, doing, he's doing well. And moreover, verse 12, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but moi. Sorry, that's the French version. No one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Now, if he would have stopped there, it would have been annoying, but maybe not disastrous. But he doesn't. He notes that there's this one thing that's wrong. Yet, 
In verse 13, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. He just can't stand it. Just driving him nuts. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, and this is their great idea. Well, let a gallows be made, right, for hanging. 50 cubits high. Now, a cubit is about a foot and a half. So this is about 75 feet up. That's really tall. Like, like that's not even practical for a gallows because then you'd have to get people up there. So this is impractical and, you know, kind of beyond the, beyond the, the norm. Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. And in the morning, so he said, tomorrow morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So their suggestion is, hey, in the morning, why don't you just hang the guy and then go to lunch? <laughs> you got to give it to the Old Testament. It slices and dices in pretty interesting ways. Now, the thing I want to point out here was actually about the issue of, of joy, just as a kind of a practical thing. There's a, there's a lot of things about the issue of pride here. Um, obviously, Haman is just full of himself, and, and Proverbs 16, 18 tells us this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is definitely kind of preceding what's about to happen. Um, but the issue of, of Haman losing his joy, I think he had all this stuff. I mean, he had like the second most stuff of anybody in the kingdom. He had a private audience with the king the, and this, this banquet. He has all this stuff. He tells about his children, his riches. He's got a lot of stuff, but he loses his joy. Even though 99% is going great, there's this 1% wrong. And what does he do? He lets the 1% rob him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's happened to me more times than I really want to admit, right? The things I have, the things that are, that are going okay, one little thing goes wrong, and all of a sudden I'm kind of like depressed or sullen or down in the dumps. I'm like, ah, oh, things aren't perfect. And I need somebody to be like, well, you're right, that's not perfect, but look what else is good. Be careful and note what causes you to lose your joy because that is a foothold of Satan. Satan will quickly come in. If he can just get one little step in in your heart, one little thing in your mind to upset the apple cart of who you are, to cause you to have a temper, to cause you to um, blow up, he will allow that thing to remain in your heart. So we have to be very careful about this issue of joy. Our joy is supposed to be unconditional, except for one aspect it's supposed to be conditional on one thing, the Lord. Nehemiah 8.10 says it probably the best. The joy of the Lord, which if you think about it, can you ever really lose the joy of the Lord? I mean, what Jesus has done for you cannot change. What it means to you cannot change. The fact that it is done, that he rose from the grave, cannot change. And it says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. When your joy is in something else, it can be taken away. When it is something that is conditional, when it is something that is temporary, yes, you will lose it. So make sure that though you may have happiness in it, joy is that kind of deeper seated root in the human heart and in the human mind that will not accept anything but the joy of the Lord. So just a kind of a a brief thing to kind of be careful about the things that take away your joy. Observe it. And let's move on now to, uh, to chapter 6. So, the plans have been made. They suggest a gallows be built. Um, and so the gallows were, we were told at the end of chapter 5. So the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. He went forward with this plan that his wife and friends suggested to him. And that night, verse 6, that night, the king, this is, of course, the king Xerxes or Ahasuerus, could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles 
and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh. Remember those two characters? They were, were I think that we, were, we hear about them in, let's see, chapter, where is it here? Oh, yes, the end of chapter two. Bigthana and Teresh, they were doorkeepers of the king. They were the eunuchs, and they sought to lay hands on the, on the king. They sought to kill him. So now, it's, this is actually five years later. This is five years after that event. And someone is reading a bedtime story to King Xerxes because he can't sleep. Poor dude, you know. And the chronicles get, get brought out. And, uh, and it, is, it is found written that Mordecai, only now, five years later, he was not honored before. They now are reading to him that Mordecai had told about this um, Basically, an assassination attempt or idea for an assassination. And these doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, verse 3, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? He's like, surely he's been been taken care of. Somebody uh, send him a greeting card, you know, a Hallmark card or a $5 uh, gift card or a Chipotle gift card. A couple of burritos, something for this guy. And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing. Now, before, before we move on to verse four and we find out what happens next, I want to read this. Um, you know, I mentioned before that this, so much of this story is about providence and how, the thing, how things are ordered by the Lord. Here we read about some unusual things within that idea of providence. First of all, a sleepless night. Can a sleepless night be from the Lord? Absolutely. What about the king's servants that go? Who was the guy that went into the library to pick the book? Hey, the king is, he can't sleep. And somebody help him out. Well, I don't know what he likes to read. Is he, is he more of a, like, is he like comedy or, well, he can't sleep. Oh, maybe, okay. So somewhere in his mind, he had to think, let's bring something that's maybe boring and historical. That's what I read when I can't sleep. Something that won't interest me. So I'm thinking the chronicles are brought because it's like reading history, like not very important history. Like, you know, he's sitting there before the king's bed. He's like, okay, so on Tuesday, five years ago, there was Taco Tuesday, and you ordered a new pair of boots. On Wednesday, the Greek army um, accepted one of the treaties you sent, um, and I think you ate a key lime pie. And on Thursday, oh, Thursday, oh, interesting. Um, this guy named Mordecai found out at a plot to assassinate you, and he reported it, and then he saved your life. Okay, moving on to Friday. And, the, and, and you know, King Xerxes is like, wait, 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 back up. What, what happened on Thursday again? This guy saved my life? He didn't know. How was that? How did that happen? Also, in thinking about God's providence, how did, how did five years go by and the person who found out about that didn't happen to tell the king, hey, by the way, somebody saved your life yesterday. Somehow, now, could you at all order those things to happen in a grand master plan yourself to think through that? Let's let five years slip by. Let's predict a sleepless night. We'll bring it to him right there. No, this is God's ordering. Now, historically, there have been some interesting things about this issue of books being given to people and then reading it. I'm just going to read you a couple examples because I came across these and I thought it was really interesting. <clears throat> as far as, you know, God's providence and stuff. So there is a young British student who had been, uh, who bought this book by uh, George MacDonald. He's a uh, uh, kind of an 18th century, 19th century um, uh, Christian author. And this book was called Fantasties. And he had picked it up at a used bookstore or something like at a train station. And he put off reading it. He'd heard about it, but he put off reading it like 12 times according to his account. And then one day he, uh, let's see what happens. Oh yeah, he delayed reading it. Eventually he decided to take it off his bookshelf, a used book. You know, it doesn't look nice or new. There's nothing appealing about it. He reads it. This book leads him to his conversion to receive Jesus Christ. Guess who the young British man was? C.S. Lewis. Clive Staples Lewis, the famous 20th century apologist or defender of the faith. English professor, but very much a writer and dealer with the issues of of philosophy. Amazing writer. 
there's another really interesting example. There is a, a young man in North Africa who was seeking peace and he pursued peace through pleasure and philosophy. But he noticed that as he sought it through these channels, he only became more and more miserable. One day he was out walking and he heard children playing a game. And one of the words that they were singing and talking about while they were playing this game was, take it and read it. Take it and read it. Who knows what it was for? Some direction for a card game, some kind of game with balls or something where they had to read something that was happening in the game. Because of that, he went and got a Bible off of his shelf. He turned to Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, randomly, which says this, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And he became converted because of that, because of children playing a game in the streets, somehow twisted him to come upon this book of the Bible and to open it up and to read. This person was Augustine, who eventually became the Bishop of Hippo. These are giants looking back, giants in the Christian faith, giants in Christian writing, giants in Christian witness. And the way that the Lord got into their lives were such, through such circuitous and interesting paths and channels. So, you never know. Sometimes we think that it's going to happen a certain way. Pray, just pray for the Lord to do the work in his time, in his way. Because it's usually kind of mysterious, but it's extremely powerful. Moving on. So he's discovered this and now he wants to do something. Verse four. So the king said, who is in the court? Now he's, he's saying, he's thinking, well, we, we got to do something to, to honor uh, Mordecai. Now guess who entered the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. And why? To suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So he's coming to kill a guy. That's his morning plan. Cup of coffee, orange juice, two pieces of toast, and murder. Let's go. That's a good Starbucks order for Saturday. And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now this is not the inner court. So this is not, he's not, he's not coming as, as Queen Esther. This is the outer court. So he, ca- he calls him in, let, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought in his heart, well, who, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Moi. Now, I'm going to point out something that I think is really interesting in the text. When Haman first came to Xerxes, he did not disclose the people group that he wanted to dispose of. He said there was a people. He didn't say it was the Jews. He didn't say how many of them there were. Just said a people. Xerxes went with it. Xerxes now speaking to him, says, what shall be done for the man? Doesn't say who the man is. Kind of playing back. I'm not sure if it's intentional, but it's interesting. He, he operates with vagueness, just enough for Haman to be brought out in his most prideful <laughs> outfit. Mwah! And Haman answered the king, because he said, you know, what should be done for this person that, that the king wants to honor? And so Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn and a horse in which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head, all these cool things, you know, then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. So he's like, now this guy needs to be led around this horse, be led around by this, somebody else that's really important and high up, you know? that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You can see the pomp of the circumstance and maybe some trumpets. Thus shall it be done. That's really high. Thus shall it be done. And so all this, this fanfare. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry. Take the robe and the horse as you have suggested 
and do so for Mordecai, the Jew. Now notice, Xerxes knows that Mordecai is a Jew. This has not escaped his attention. Now, this, ha- this king has to know at this point that Mordecai sits under condemnation of this law. So there's some stuff happening in the midst of this. Some unraveling, I think, within the mind. Some, some, uh, some planning. Do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And afterward Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, this is almost like prophetic, is of Jewish descent, they've heard of the Jews and the Jews' God, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. That's not a good word to receive from your wife and your friends. That's That's not good. You're like, but yesterday you guys told me to build gallows and have this guy killed. And now you're telling me, oh, oh, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Watch out who your counselors are. (laughs) And while they were still talking with him, this is the next day after the first banquet, the king's eunuch came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. So now begins banquet number two in chapter seven. And just a couple things to point out here that I think are are quite important. Um, I think first and foremost is is this issue of um, of pride, right? And I've touched on this once before, but um, again, Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. You see, there's an interesting aspect of this story that also has to do with the heart of Haman and what he's doing as he's being humbled. Notice this humbling process has begun in Haman. He's, he's being given a chance to kind, of, to kind of bow, to kind of give up. But does he take the hint? Does he take the hint to relent of his plan, to change his ways? Unfortunately, he does not. And I think the Lord is gracious in us to us in the same way. Sometimes he gives us opportunity to see the folly of our way and say, you know what? I'm sorry. Let me. Let me back up here. Let me, let me take a step two back. Let me see this a little differently. And it's us taking the hints that God gives. But you have to listen and you have to be willing. The second thing is this, um, is what do you do and what kind of characters revealed when you are honored? Mordecai is such a fascinating uh, uh, character within the story. And, and note, after he is paraded through the city after he has Haman doing all these things to celebrate and honor him, all the things that he wasn't giving to Haman. What does he do after that? Look with me here. After this, in verse 12, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. That's where he was before. Mordecai goes right back to work. He's not, he does not have a big head about this. He doesn't go running to Xerxes, hey, 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 since I saved your life. He goes right back to the station he was. This is so important for us. Honor does happen in life, but what do you do after the honor is, is there? Do you get built up by it? Do you, do you make yourself high and mighty? Or do you just get back to work? The most important thing for the Christian to do, even when those times of honor or celebration or the mountaintop experiences of our lives, even even spiritually speaking, after that happens, get right back to work. The best thing to do after you honor, get honored is to put your hand on a vacuum cleaner and just start cleaning your house again. Do some dishes. Get right back into serving people. 
But look at what Haman does again. He hasn't lost everything. But as soon as he experiences this, he is crushed. He is completely crushed. He's mourning, his head covered. And this this sense of things falling apart begins to become more and more pronounced. So, let's read on our last chapter, uh, chapter 7 in the book of Esther. So, they've, in, they've gotten him from his house. They're now being brought to banquet number 2. Right? We talked about the fact that there were two banquets. So, the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen, en- excuse me, then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, and now the real request comes. And notice the timing of this request. When does she finally let it happen? After all this stuff has transpired with Haman, the beginning of his fall, the, the honoring of Mordecai, a Jew, being known to the king, a Jew saved his life, even though they were under, under a, a threat of, of, of annihilation. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition. Let my life be given me. This is very different than being invited to a third lunch. Maybe the king thought, hey, maybe a third lunch. We're just going to get, it's going to be a three lunch kind of deal out of here. Now the seriousness of this is revealed. Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold my people and I. She realizes now who she is. She's a Jew. She is one of the Jews that has, is under this law of destruction. We've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. She's like, even if we were just dishonored or, or put in a, a, a second-tier category in the kingdom, I, I wouldn't have said anything. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. That's an interesting comment, and I'll come back to it in a second. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now this is so interesting. Did he not sign the law into effect? It's kind of interesting. Now he realizes, he must realize on some level that he's responsible but he also realizes that he's been led astray, right? He's like, who was behind that? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. He's the only one in the room with him. And so Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Things have changed in Haman's life in a matter of 24 hours in a drastic way. He was just bragging the day before how mighty and how wonderful he was. And his friends told him to build a, a, you know, a, a gallows for this guy to kill him. And now he has to honor the person that he doesn't like. And he's being accused of basically sedition going against the queen. So Haman was terrified before the king. And then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So the king is left because he's just mad at what's happened. He's left alone. He's pleading, pleading for his life with Esther. Please, please, please. And you can just imagine this guy who's been so kind of high and mighty, high on the hog probably just weeping like a coward. Oh no, I'm, uh, uh, please, please, it's all a misunderstanding. Just a misunderstanding. I only misunderstandingly assigned 15 million people to their death. And when the king returned, verse 8, from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. So she's laying on a couch. She's that's interesting, right? After all this was revealed, she's just sitting down. 
relaxed? How is that possible? Well, I don't know, but she is. And Haman is either, he's either one of two things. Either he's pleading with her because she's on the couch and he's, he's trying to, to get close to her in order to convince her. Or he is actually doing what the king thinks he's doing. Because then it says, the king then said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, I love this. Harbona, this eunuch just happens to be around and he, of all, all the things he happens to put his eye on, you know, hey, what's that in the sky? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's gallows. Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai. He just puts it right out there. Look, look what I see. A death chamber. Perfect timing for Haman. Which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf. And so he's, he's like promoting the thing that, that, that Mordecai did. Is standing at the house of Haman. Look, this gallows is just right at his house. Perfect. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. There's really interesting things about this, uh, this chapter that I'll just point to before we finish our study tonight. Remember the issue of the what to do and the how to do it and the when to do it with the prayer? She's decided... And she's heard to have two banquets. What would have happened if she had told him on the first banquet? The information about who Mordecai was would have not been known to the king. The revealing of who Haman's character was would not be known to the community. The callows would not be there. The timing, the timing of the Lord is so perfect. And this is all about how he's going to eventually get to the place of saving all the Jews in this entire 127 province nation of Medo-Persia because she waited a second day to invite him to a lunch the second day and there reveal her real request. It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Now, she also says this interesting thing, and I pointed this out. It's, it's, it's a slight detail, but I think it's interesting. When she says there in verse 4 that she and her people were going to be destroyed, she, of course, is telling him that she's a Jew as well, so that's information. But she says, had we been sold as female slaves, I would have held my tongue. But then he said, but she adds, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And I want to draw your attention to that. When she points out this issue of the king's loss, my mind started to think about that. Like, what does she mean? Well, I think she was starting to get the king to understand that, first of all, if he had to go out and get all the people to kill 15 million people, there'd be a lot of, probably a lot of loss of life of the people fighting. Second of all, that many people in a foreign nation would be probably paying taxes or tribute or something. So the amount of money that would be lost would be incredible. Even if they all just... They, they just lost $1 from each person, much less like 100 talents of silver, whatever the year's uh, taxes were. Um, people to work, people to serve, people to help the community stay working. Now remember, Haman had offered to give 10,000, I think 10,000 talents of silver. But when you compare it, it seems like a lot of money, but when you compare it to amount, the amount that would actually be lost by actually going through through this destruction, annihilation of people, it's pennies. It's pennies in the bucket. So she's also working on the king's mind, not just his heart. Of course, he he loved Esther. We, We read about that in the early chapters. But she's also getting him to think wisely what he would lose economically. I think that's very important that she's working on kind of both angles. Numbers 32 verse 23 says this. Be sure your sin will find you out. And of course, Haman is the perfect example 
of this, that your sin will find you out. Psalm 7, 14 through 16 says this, he who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself and his violence comes down on his own head. We see this a lot in life. Sometimes people who are doing things that are wicked or who get away with it for a certain amount of time, at some point, at some point, things come back to them. We have to remember that the Lord is always looking upon these things and he's even, he's speaking to the evil people just like he's speaking to someone who is righteous. Hey, you got to quit that. Remember all the hints that Haman got that he didn't take. There's an interesting quote by Friedrich von Laugau who says this, though the mills of God grind slowly, and that's something we all have to deal with, right? When you see somebody prospering who's doing no good or shady business practices or whatever, it can be like, why are they doing so well? Why do they have the Lamborghini and I have the Ford Fiesta? Why? <laughs> what? No, no. Especially if it's paid off. I wonder how many Lamborghinis are on loan and end up getting taken by banks. That'd be an interesting study. Every once in a while you read in the news about somebody who takes their new Lamborghini out for a spin and like the first night they, they crash it. It's like, it's, it's, it's hard to feel sorry for that person, isn't it? I mean, I am sorry for them on some level, but on a whole other levels, I'm sorry, I'm really not. But he says, though the mills of God grind slowly, right? As God is processing people and their situations, what they do, how they sow, how they sow in life. Yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience, he stands waiting. With exactness, he grinds all. Isn't that interesting? Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience, he stands waiting. With exactness, grinds he all. No one escapes the justice grind of the Lord. No one escapes. It's it's an illusion for us to think that some people truly get away with it. No, no, no one, no one gets away with it. And I don't know about you, but I have, that ministers such peace to my heart. Because it keeps me out of that place where I begin to accuse or look on others and and begin to think and, and maybe begin to even covet because of that. No, no. The Lord knows all. The Lord knows the operation. And he will with exactness grind all. Galatians 6, 8 warns us and says this, if we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we reap life everlasting. And again, I want to point out this last thing as we close out chapter 7. Remember, this all unfolded because Esther decided to humble herself, to ask people to fast for her for three days to seek out a plan. And now chapters five through seven and the rest of the book, we see the unfolding of that unique, beautiful, providential prayer unfolding into two lunches and the exact timing for Haman to get what was coming to him. Let us not fear God's timing. Let us embrace it. Let us pray, let us hear from the Lord his unique plans for how we are supposed to operate under the unique circumstances that each of us have in our life. And let us trust him and put on that royal robe, whatever it is. Maybe you have a really nice sports jacket or a really funky tie or unique pants. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is where you say to yourself as you go when you've been receiving from the Lord, I'm going to dress for this, I'm going to dress to serve the Lord and do what he's told me to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're always listening and hearing. And as we read this story of Esther, it's just amazing the timing. And we want to just lay before you, Lord, our lives and the timing of things that we, we wrestle with so easily. 
When will things happen? When will things change? When will you take care of this or that thing or this person or that situation? And Lord, we just lay it all at your feet tonight. And we say, Lord, we know you have it. We know that you will bring things about in your time and your timing, as we've seen, is perfect. Help us now, Lord, to sow not to the flesh, but sow to the spirit and thus to reap, as the scripture says, life everlasting. We trust you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We invite you to take more and more control of our life. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.